Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that hates cops. And in this case, when we say cops, we're talking about punitive teachers and we love justice. Woo woo! <laughs> Today we have Laura. And Zoe. Sorry, that was so annoying. And Zoe. I don't know why I did that. Who cares? <laughs> I love it. So today we are talking about our education system. Um, specifically, we're going to be talking about what's going on in our education systems today and how that might relate to mass incarceration and how schools and education systems can provide better support to youth who might be, quote unquote, behaviorally struggling in the classroom. So today we have two incredible educators with us. They both came to our live recording in Philly, and we're at the Philly Sochfem Convergence, which is amazing. And we had such an incredible conversation that night about education and what we can do as education, blah, what we can do as educators to make things better for our students. So welcome Scarlett and Mel. Woo! Hey! Hi! um first of all thank you both so much for being with us this is amazing and it's nice to hear your lovely voices instead of tweeting at you um (laughs) (laughs) can you two start by introducing yourselves in whatever way you feel comfortable uh go first (laughs) (laughs) um so my name is mel i am a, a teacher in new jersey i teach music And uh, I'm also a restorative practices trainer. So I help school districts and organizations adopt restorative practices. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, I'm Scarlett. I am a teacher in San Jose, California. Um, I teach high school students with autism in um, a Title I school. So, yeah. Um, What does a Title I school mean? It means like over a certain percentage of the students uh, qualify for free or reduced lunch. So it's basically like a lower socioeconomic status type school. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. I've, when I worked at an elementary school in Portland, we were the same thing, but I feel like in, in Oregon, it was not called that it was called something else, but I was just, I just wanted clarification because as we might get into a lot of education things vary from state to state. So cool. Yeah. Good to know. Well, okay. Amazing. Both educators, both doing the fucking work. Um, so just going to start by just like tearing this open immediately with a complicated question, but also something that I think will ground us in really where we want to go from here. But, you know, This can go in a lot of different directions, but feel free to take it literally anywhere. Um, What, in your opinions, are the biggest flaws in our educational system as it currently exists in the United States? I feel like a shorter question is, like, what are the strengths of the education system? No, for sure. But I think it's important to talk about the, like, because there's so much, right? But I think that can, like, help us frame the rest of the discussion. (laughs) Sure. No, I love when we ask really broad questions and our guests are just like, um, what? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, obviously there's a lot to talk about, um, especially especially when we consider the different roles that a school plays. We know that a school isn't just a place where you go to learn content material, but it's also this site for that a lot of other stuff is happening for and a lot of other kinds of growth for kids. And so when we talk about what's what are our flaws in our educational system, I think it's important to recognize what we think it should be doing right now. Yes. And a lot of people have disagreements about what the responsibility of our education system is. And I think that one of our biggest flaws is that we are not creating whole human beings. Yes. Uh, yes. We are, you know, pretty good at teaching kids how to play the game, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm. uh, figure out what the rules are and work within the rules and kind of just like keep your head down and 
uh, but it's not necessarily creating people who are fully equipped to function in society in general. Yeah, for fucking sure. Scarlett, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, um, I totally agree with Mel. Um, But the biggest thing is... uh, that one person, uh, Betsy DeVos, I think her name is. What? I heard her name the was also fucking uh, evil bitch. Sorry. I like, I tried to come up with something more witty and honestly, I'm offended with myself, like for it being so lame that I could only come up with that. But like, I just saw red and rage, like, course through my veins. But anyway, yes. Yeah, anytime I hear her name, it's like, uh, I have to use my coping strategies to calm down and forget about her. Um, But anyways. (laughs) But yeah, um, everything that Mel said. But um, from my perspective, like, I'm really hyper-focused on students with disabilities and Mm -hmm. kids with autism. So, like, I think a really huge flaw in our education system is that like they're often those students are seen as the others and they're not included or schools will be like, yeah, we're including students by giving them an award at a rally or Mm. uh, pushing them into the general education classroom when that's not, that's not inclusion. And that's not (laughs) it. That just seems like, Oh, we're trying to make, ourselves feel better like yay we're doing things but um what I think would be better is if like we're really looking at our students from a place of like understanding and supporting them and like having all students understand each other which kind of ties into restorative justice and but we can get into that later (laughs) yeah and I think that you bring up a really good point about like how kids kind of get pushed through their system and um in general, we're more and more realizing that there is just not one correct way that all students can learn. Yes. Um, And it's just becoming increasingly problematic that like there's one system and if you don't work within that system, then you're not going to be successful. And so these kids do kind of get pushed through um, and then are left at the end either, you know, dropping out, not being successful or being successful, but only in the specific way that they're asked yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah exactly and sorry no please no <laughs> sorry ah shit sorry. no sorry <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that makes me think of like how teachers and parents and society we keep focusing on what students cannot do mm. instead of what they can do and like um capitalizing on that so and yeah Making them live full, healthy adult lives. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, y'all are fucking talking about all the things. And I know we're going to get a little bit more into, like, the testing system a little bit later with, you know, Zoe has a kind of more specific question about this. But I would also add, like, the way that teachers are specifically, like, the way that they get feedback from principals based on how many students pass certain like what are meant to be objective measures of the classroom but really are really skewed you know state testing from a really young age on and teachers are getting like this kind of sink or at least like in the schools that I've worked in like this this almost like sink or swim mentality of like even if they're against teaching to the test or teaching to um whatever state standards there are um, you know, their job in a lot of ways ends up relying on that as well as like the funding allocated to any given school, um, mm. which feels like a whole nother piece of it. But like for me, it it is important, especially I work now um, with teens that go to a bunch of different schools in the Buffalo City School District. And like we talk a lot about how they all have pretty different experiences in their education system based on what school they are in and like what that means for the city of Buffalo and stuff like that. So anyway, (laughs) (laughs) switching gears slightly, but obviously staying, you know, within the same framework. 
Um, you know, this episode is also about restorative justice. So what do you know about restorative justice? Um, what is it? Maybe if one of you want to take te- take that on in case our listeners aren't aware of what that is. Um, and how do you see it applying to the classrooms or schools that you've worked with? I know that's a lot. <laughs> Again, like literally no simple questions here, but you know, you both are incredible and brilliant. So thank you again. Oh, stop it. <laughs> um, well, restorative justice is basically a reaction to a current kind of punitive way of dealing with uh, discipline. Mm-hmm. Um and, and the way that we kind of do it in greater society is replicated within the schools. And so the punitive disciplinary systems in schools kind of, uh, we know they're not working. We know they're pushing kids out and they're exacerbating inequalities. And so restorative justice is kind of a way of uh, reacting to that and moving towards a different way of dealing with harm and building community within a school. Mm-hmm. That's a great definition. So yeah, how do you see it applying to the classrooms or schools that you've worked with? How do you see it or like how has that worked when it's worked successfully or do you have any like examples of that, I guess? Even if it's not in the full school system, we'd love to see like are there ways that you've seen it implemented? Um, I can talk about my school. Um, So It's interesting at our school because um, we have two very different types of teachers at our school that are, Mm. one is very much traditional, punitive, like you better wise up or get the fuck out type of deal. Then we have some other teachers that are very much into supporting students and getting at the root of the problems and trying to focus on meeting the students where they're at. uh, so some of the teachers at my school absolutely think that restorative justice is a piece of shit, and it doesn't yeah. work, um, which is really unfortunate. But I think the problem is that we haven't been implementing RJ in its true intent. Mm. Um, like we're not getting trained as staff. We don't have staff buy-in. I don't even think the students know what the hell is going on (laughs) other than um, what I do think we do well is we have a lot of mediations where we bring both parties in and they try and see each other's perspectives and um, come to some sort of agreement or understanding and then they get sent on their way. But I'm really excited about this upcoming school year because our, um, one of our associate principals is really driving home uh, professional development for us as staff um, with social, emotional, um, and restorative justice trainings and um, intentions. So, mm. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, that's, I think, I think what the picture that Scarlett has painted is really common among schools that try to adopt restorative mm-hmm. justice is, is those kind of two kinds of teachers. And, uh, the teachers that often, uh, provide the most pushback against RJ are usually the teachers who find comfort in a lot of the power dynamics and the hierarchies that the kind of more punitive style provides. Uh, it's, it's really, it's a lot quicker and easier to control a classroom through, you know, punishment and fear and like creating this climate of uh, like really rigid discipline. Uh, it feels good at first because it feels like you have control over your class, but it's not control that's gained yes. the right way. And yes. so, you know, like those are the classes that once the teacher leaves, you know, are terrors to the sub yes Uh, it's not actually behavior for the better for the right reason and so I can understand why they're uh concerned about RJ because it involves releasing some of that control and sharing Mm -hmm. some of that power and build rebuilding it 
slowly over time, it doesn't give you that instant gratification uh, that I think a lot of teachers find comfort in. Totally. Yeah. And we need entire staff to buy into this or oh, and yeah. drink the Kool-Aid because <laughs> if, if we don't, then pe- the teachers are going to push back against it and create all these conflicts within mm-hmm. each other as staff members and students are wise. They're going to pick up on that. Oh, yeah. Um, Definitely. And then and, and, and the biggest thing, I think, why these teachers are... Um, resisting RJ in addition to what Mel said is like it changes your core belief if you're like I am very big into respect and you have a student that comes at you and cusses at you which happens every day at my high school (laughs) it's a tough area but they're great um a lot of teachers feel like personally offended and they get into this power struggle and that that's hard to kind of unpack for the teachers themselves and they need to kind of look at themselves instead of saying the student is the problem. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. I mean, like when I think about it, because I currently, again, work with high schoolers, it's in an alternative setting. So it's kind of nice that, you know, it's not fully within the confines of a school. Um, but, you know, it's similar, like really vulnerable populations, mostly immigrant and refugee, all um, very low income students. Um, but, you know, we tell young kids, you know, uh, respect is earned, like when they're asking for things or doing things. And then we kind of like hide behind age, I feel oh, like, or like yeah. certain teachers will hide behind age and f- kind of forget that respect is earned because, mm-hmm. you know, for me, when I'm working with these teens, they're, they're, they're experiencing so much outside of when I see them. They're e- possibly, you know, taking care of their entire family or even protecting their siblings from, um, you know, a potentially violent situation coming from a parent or both parents. Um, they might be experiencing hunger on a pretty huge scale. They they might be experiencing, um, you know, they, they might be experiencing something as, I guess, like, maybe not all teachers would find this innocent, but for me, I find it innocent of, like, losing their virginity. Like, or fuck the concept of the virginity, but, like, you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's like they might just be going through something and it's like, it takes a few questions and it takes a few moments of your attention to like, I don't know, gain that trust and gain that respect back from them by being genuinely interested and like them consistently seeing that you're, you have their back. Um, Because a lot of these youth, particularly if they're in a vulnerable situation, have maybe been let down by adults over and over and over again, or maybe have been abandoned by adults over and over again. And even like changing teachers from year to year can be a really tough transition for, for youth. So it's always like fascinating to me when people, when like teachers are pulling the, like, you will call me this name and that's it. Or like, just like, however it, it, it kind of shows up where that like respectability piece comes in. Um, mm-hmm. Totally bonkers. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, it's interesting because I, last month I, me and a couple of my students, I took like a core group of freshman students to this youth restorative justice summit um, in Manhattan where they got to meet with kids from other schools who are really kind of deep into the RJ process. And I got to speak to other teachers and I was surprised how many of these public schools just don't even use last names for teachers anymore. Yeah. Uh, which it feels so weird, but I, I love it yes. because, yes. because you're absolutely right. Like kids need, kids will respect you when you show that you care about them as a human being. Yes. It's Mm -hmm. like they don't um, like we can't process these arbitrary rules for like power and respect. Uh, It it only comes with human connection. And that takes a while. The only way to do it is build Mm -hmm. relationships. Absolutely. And sometimes I don't want people to know my last name. Like, (laughs) like the seniors that I work with, I'll be like, yeah, I'm I have this podcast. 
it's called season of the bitch but like <laughs> i don't maybe want like my 14 year old youth that i work with i don't know whatever it's like one of those things that like they have the internet at their fingertips and like they'll find stuff i'm like just call me laura it's cool like i never want anyone to call me anything else you know uh, what? Now I'm going to have my students call me by my first name next year. Yes. <laughs> Fuck it. Yes. Yeah, it, it, it is hard because you're right. Like, everyone has to be on the same page about stuff. And, and teachers can try everything in their power to develop these relationships and try to dismantle these power imbalances in the classroom. But if that's not backed up in the greater school community, it gets lost. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's it's really hard. There's there's only so much change that one teacher can make by themselves. Like they have to have the backup of administration and the larger community and the students and the rest of the staff. Yeah, I completely totally. agree. And it's hard to get everybody to have your back on things like that because at least at my school in my school district in Silicon Valley, we have so much turnover. Um, mm. I, I can't even tell you how many times I like freaked out this summer because I kept getting email and after email of pe- people like my principal or the school psychologist or my program specialist and yada, yada, yada that are leaving because, um, our school is tough or it's just hard to live here in, yeah. in the Valley of course. and they're moving away. So like if you have high turnover, it's going to be hard to build that kind of um, cultural understanding at your school because you have to constantly reteach or you have admin that are like, mm, I'm not about that. Or, mm. and then all your work is, you know, messed up. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk briefly before we move on finally to Zoe's question. <laughs> Sorry, Zoe. Um, it's okay. Um, that so when I worked with elementary schoolers um, I worked for an organization called Playworks and it's complicated because I think what the work Playworks is doing is really good but I would love to see a different model of this so again it was elementary school so kindergarten to fifth grade typically Um, I worked in a school that had over 30 languages spoken by the students at the school so really um, large immigrant and refugee population And the specific mission of the organization is to reduce behavioral issues through play and connection. So I would teach conflict resolution skills through play to elementary school students. Um, And it worked like the behavioral, like the actual write ups and things like that dropped 80 percent within the first year. Um, And teachers like talked a lot about how they were able to increase the amount of quote-unquote productive time within the classroom because they didn't have to worry about corrective behavior because the students had the tools to be able to solve those interpersonal conflicts themselves. Um, And I really liked the mission of this org, and it's it does do a lot of good. um, And in addition to, like, you know, there was a, a healthy bodies, help, healthy minds kind of perspective in it, too, where, like, if you get people out of their seats f- for a little while, it can help, uh, you know, the brain flow and stuff like that. But I think that there was a lot of issues with this uh, type of model as well. And the biggest issue is that Playworks was in a con- and is still across the country. Playworks is a national nonprofit. So. Playworks is is um, contracted by a lot of public schools across the country, uh, school districts. And what ends up happening, particularly if you are a first year Playworks staff in a school, which I was, there's a lot of pushback from the teachers and a lot of mistrust from the teachers. They're like nervous, understandably so, that their jobs are threatened by these kind of contracted positions outside of the district because... Um, you know, we didn't get those like state pensions or anything like that, that a lot of district employees get. Um, and we also particularly were originally, you know, we take youth out of the classroom early, like more than they would have liked. Uh, you know, the school I was in had the lowest reading scores in the state of Oregon. So when I would say to teachers like, Hey, I'm going to take your class out to do this activity, they would look at me like I was absolutely nuts 
Um, <laughs> because like, and I, and I don't, you know, I don't have judgment for those teachers. I really think like it did take the, and I think, you know, the respect, at least in that context for me, because I got it. I was like, I get it. Like, I understand how much teachers are totally shat on and I am not here to take your job. I'm not here to do anything other than try to give youth another way of understanding how to communicate with each other, even if they might not speak the same language or even if they're still like learning these tools, like give them tools within a framework they understand, which in, at the elementary school level especially is play and, you know, be able to solve conflict in, in that way. And, you know, by halfway through the year, a lot of the teachers in my school, like more than 80 percent of the teachers in my school, like had my back, were there for it, were looking forward to the time when I would take the youth out of their classroom. And because they recognized it through how they saw the change in their own classroom, they saw um, what it what it did for them. So hell yeah, <laughs> it's cool. It's a cool organization. Again, like I think that it would be cool if you know, we could see districts across the country doing that at every age level and like within the actual district itself. Because again, I work at a nonprofit now and I think we do great work. But nonprofits also make me nervous in that I'm like, this should just be a like universal thing that is happening right. and mm-hmm. not done by like these nonprofits and through grants and things like that. Like I, I get nervous about the nonprofit model in general, which I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but like... <laughs> I, I do think that there is there's a lot we can do with restorative justice and there's a lot that schools can do with that and yeah. That's mostly what I was trying to illustrate there. <laughs> yeah, well we're really lucky that um our my school district um decided to to make the investment to get me and a couple other teachers fully trained in restorative practices. Um so that we could then turn key it to the staff and like then, you know, to the students and then to the parents and yada, yada. So, so we're lucky that that was happening internally for us, but yeah, like we want self-sustaining communities, right? Like we don't want to rely on groups coming in to kind of save us. Um, and that self-sustaining community thing is so central to RJ like we want to be able to work through our problems ourselves we want to learn from each other we want to grow according to the needs of our community without these outside people coming in absolutely yeah so I'm gonna switch gears a little bit (laughs) Um, (laughs) but I was doing research for this up earlier and Like, it's not something I know a ton about. I went to public school my whole life to, like, a very punitive school. We had, like, a cop on staff, Officer Jackie. I still remember her fucking name. Um, That would, like, patrol the hallways. And, well, this is a slight deviation, but I had a very on-brand anecdote for me, which is that um, I was a swimmer in high school, and we had practices at 5 in the morning. And so I would, like, go swim for two hours, like, in the school upstairs, and then go to homeroom. And I missed homeroom too many times. So I had to like go to the, um, I forget what they call the disciplinarian and like they gave me detention and I was like, but I was like in the school, like I was literally upstairs swimming and they're like, yeah, but you missed homeroom, which is just when they like take attendance and did nothing. So anyway, I got a detention and I went and they forgot to tell me that detention was canceled that day. So there was no one in there. And then I sent this like five paragraph email to the disciplinarian being like, my time is just as valuable as yours and you (laughs) wasted my time. So I'm not doing detention. And they were just like, okay, don't do detention. (laughs) Big Sag energy, baby. (laughs) And I remember like telling my mom and she was like, you know what? Yeah, you're right. And usually my mom is like, stop. Zoe, don't start conflict. Stop doing this. But good for you for standing up for yourself. Like students, it's hard for students to advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. They're not prioritized. Yeah. And then like Mm -hmm. you can't obviously just get in more trouble. But luckily, I think they were just too like annoyed with me. They were like, just we don't want you (laughs) attention. (laughs) But anyway, be annoying till you get what you want. Yes, honestly. Um, but so I was researching and this one article came up that was talking about how like restorative justice was successful in, um, eliminating how many like suspensions there were, but like the standardized test scores 
dropped, which is not really something that like I care about. Um, I mean, in terms of like standardized testing, obviously are not like a good way of testing intelligence. And in my opinion, we're like very punitive to have to take, like I hated taking them. I never did well. Um, because that's just really, I'm a creative type. That's not, uh, that's not for me. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, like, do you think restorative justice is part of a larger change or dare I say, like, revolution of the education system that would also involve, like, eliminating standardized tests and, like, other sorts of changes? Ooh, it's all part of the agenda. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, when we started incorporating RJ uh, in our district, one of the first questions that some of our staff were asking of administration was if we're going to do this if you're going to say that we need to take more time in our classroom getting to know our students creating emotional bonds Mm -hmm. and social ties like deepening uh deepening that form of interpersonal connection Mm -hmm. then something else has to go we don't have unlimited class time so if you want us to spend more time on this we have to spend less time on content. So you need to make the commitment that right now testing is not as important as this. Mm-hmm. You can't have both. You can't just have, like Scarlett said, you can't just kind of like halfway do some of it. You have to make the commitment to do that. And that's going to come at the expense of standardized testing. Now, later, it's going to help everybody. It's going to make kids Uh, It's going to help kids learn better and study better and do better in school uh, because they'll be able to cope uh, with, you know, whatever was bothering them that was hindering them before. But but I think that's absolutely true. It's it can't be both. Yeah, I agree with you, Mel. I, I think it's absolutely pushing back or RJ is pushing back on the traditional sense of what a school should be. And it's really focusing on supporting our students emotionally and giving them coping skills instead of just saying, you suck, you did this wrong, bye. Like now what we're doing, (laughs) what? I just said bye. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and now what we're doing is teaching the whole child and I keep saying meet them where they're at, but like meeting them where they're at and instead of punishing them for not having the skills to cope or communicate, we're teaching them those skills. Like some, a teacher told me recently, like in thinking about how students behave, there's always a function, right? But she said, we don't punish students uh, that are bad at math for being bad at math. Um, and what we're doing for our students with behavioral challenges and whatnot, like we're, we're punishing them instead of teaching them how to do the thing like right. we did in math or whatever other subject. Yeah. I mean, it's really not fair to kids that they are being placed in this system where there's these expectations and they don't necessarily know how to fulfill those expectations. Um, And even sometimes just going from classroom to classroom, one teacher to the next, the expectations can be wildly different. And, you know, behavior that's okay in one teacher's classroom is not okay in another teacher's classroom. Oh my God. Yes. Uh, You know, like the way that you speak to your teachers. And so they're expected to kind of like juggle all of these different ways of uh, acting and it can feel very arbitrary and, uh, mm-hmm. when, when you implement restorative justice in schools, it provides that really necessary consistency of, mm-hmm. you know, like, this is how we handle things. This is how we speak to each other. This is what we value. This is uh, how we respond to a really strong emotion. Uh, because it's really just not fair to be asking them to live in this state of constant anxiety and inconsistency about what's going to happen when I do something. Yeah, they're constantly code switching from classroom to classroom, from administrator to administrator, or from friend group to friend group. And RJ, I think, provides a baseline understanding for everyone. So we're all on the same page, and we're going to support each other. And it might suck from time to time, but we're going to get through it, and we're going to be better in the end. And it takes time, but 
I think it's interesting because I even think about like the code switching that the teens, even within my organization now, have to do between person to person. And also the feedback I get from other staff I work with is that they're like, well, don't you think that that teen's going to take advantage of you because you Uh, didn't like blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, who cares? (laughs) First of all, maybe. But second of all, they know I have their back. And I know that if I was like, you need to do this thing, they would do it. Like, I have developed such a relationship with them that like, yes, maybe they're taking advantage of our whatever violation system that we have in place because they understand it and they understand the rules that are put in place for that so that they're like kind of taking advantage to the system. But also they're taking advantage of the system because they had to take the public bus to get here, which is like garbage. And they knew that if they took the one that got them here five minutes late, it would save a lot of time for them on the front end rather than getting to the bus stop 30 minutes early and showing up 30 minutes early. Like, it's just one of those things that it's like, yes, I understand that they're kind of taking advantage of this thing, but also like, I'm not mad about it. Like, it's okay. Like the system, we have to do what we need to do to survive. So it's okay. Mm-hmm. They're teenagers. They're going to find the boundaries. They're going to push back. Yes. It's okay. Yes. Like, yeah. Relax, everybody. <laughs> right, but, like, they do pick up on you not trusting them. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. if you assume from the get-go that all of these kids are going to take advantage of you, you're going to build a wall, yes. and you're never going to establish a meaningful connection. Yes. Like, okay. you think about, like, I think about all of my favorite teachers – and they were teachers that I saw as whole people. I, and they were people that, you know, were willing to reach out and uh, form that connection with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. that and that starts with trust. Uh, expectations still. And, you know, having that, like, accountability structure. But also trusting that I'm going to uh, meet those expectations. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely all of my favorite teachers were ones that, like, reached out to me, would, like, notice if I clearly was upset about something and, like, ask me what happened or, like, try to take literally any interest in, like, my life. Um, but, yeah, so I wanted to talk about um, sexism within education, which, as I'm sure we all know, starts very early, whether that be, like, differentiating of toys for boys and girls or, like, boys knowing that they're going to get away with a lot more because, like, quote-unquote, they're just being boys. Mm. Um, Or, like, bullying from boys, which I definitely experienced, like, all through school of, like, a lot of, like, body shaming and slut shaming from, like, male peers. Yeah. So I guess I'm asking, like, what what is the feminist lens for restorative justice, um, like, how does it address those sorts of things? That's a really good question. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I think that I have the, the answer, which Ooh. is that restorative justice moves away from the model in which a person is accountable to an institution or, like, a set of rules or laws and shifts that accountability towards accountability for others around you, uh, people in your community, uh, and emotional accountability. Because the fact is, like, we all know what we're like as teenagers. Like, teenagers rebel. They don't love being accountable to the system. It just doesn't work. And when they violate expectations, there's not going to necessarily be that meaningful remorse like there is if they're held accountable to the emotions and their impact on other people. Uh, And especially when you talk about something as kind of like vague and subtle as sexism, Mm -hmm. uh, when kids are doing it, it's not like the school handbook has, you know, violations of sexism in that, you know, it's not like there's a school rule. Uh, So it's the meaning, the meaningful way of addressing those behaviors is when they are forced to reconcile with the way that their actions are affecting their peers. When a young girl gets the opportunity to share the impact of those sexist actions with the maybe like young male student who's doing that, Mm -hmm. and they're forced to constantly be aware of their impact, that really, really does take form for kids, especially since 
social shame is so strong for young people, it's just so much more effective than punishing based on a set of rules. Yeah, that actually reminds me, I forget where the school district was. I rec- A couple months ago, there was this article about how um, this high school had like one of those slut lists come out that, yeah, it's a thing that happens. Um, but then the, the girls, some of the girls on the list insisted on being able to do this assembly and like shared like their experiences and talked about like why it was really upsetting for them, like why it's wrong. And like the boy students were just like, wow, we like never thought of that. Oh, right. What's happening? Oh, there's a really loud motorcycle, I think. Oh. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I know oh, that's okay. okay. I just like got, was confused. Um, but yeah, so then the boy students were just like, wow, we never thought of that. Like, we'll never do that again. Mm. Yeah. And it's yeah, almost and like a reckoning. That's exactly yeah. it. I mean, we, we talk about that all the time with how much of these behaviors people get away with, these, you know, microaggressions and subtly oppressive behaviors. And it's doesn't it's not like men live their lives constantly being told that's sexist behavior that's a sexist behavior and they care they just no one tells them they it becomes ingrained because they literally don't realize you know not everyone but a lot of people don't realize how that actually impacts people and when we start to uh face people with those impacts at a young age it can really alter the face of our social fabric. Yeah. And I mean, of course, this is like a common example, but like it's worth saying that it's still an issue that teachers kind of play are are complicit in, I would say. Not us, obviously, but (laughs) we're the good ones. We're we're the good ones. Um, Is the whole dress code stuff um, and, Mm -hmm. and how dress codes really specifically target girls and young women um, because they're like focused on the male gaze, including mm-hmm. including male teachers gaze um, rather than having other conversations about uh, consent and about mm-hmm. what objectifying another person is and stuff like that. But I have, um, you know, a ton of teen girls that will come to me complaining about, you know, needing to be sent to the bathroom and get, be, she was, I had a conversation with a student earlier this week about like, um, how oh, she was so upset when she was, she was like very interested in her math class and something happened in her math class where like someone saw like whatever, like part of her skin that they sh- quote unquote should not have seen and she her was ankle. <laughs> yeah, like I have no idea. Like I don't even know what the example was because it was so freaking nuts. But it's like, you know, if you're an educator and you're listening to this, like maybe a small silent way of fighting back is like not fully enforcing that stuff that your school is doing because Oh yeah. That is like a super garbage way. Like, right? Like we have the opportunity as educators to fight back in these ways. And you don't need to write up your students for those for those types of things and maybe like write up like a white dude who's wearing a blue lives matter shirt instead or something i don't know yes like like, like you just yeah yeah so scarlett you mentioned that you work with kids with autism i know we talked about this a little in philly because um my brother has autism and my dad is like an autism specialist so uh yeah it's a, a topic i'm very familiar with um, mm-hmm. So how does restorative justice affect students with behavioral or learning disabilities? Well, before I answer that question, sure. I had no idea what your dad did. So when we were at the live recording and I saw <laughs> all those posters, I was like, oh, my God, this is so cool. And I took pictures of all the posters that yeah, were like yes. about autism. I, um... When I was in high school, I did. So I'm a trained like Hebrew school teacher, but I've only ever, well, I haven't done it in a long time. But anyway, um, when I was training, the my teacher for like Jewish education had a son with autism and she like knew my dad's book. And so when she had me in her class, she was like, like saw my last name and it's not a very common last name because it's not common in the US because it's Lebanese. Mm-hmm. And she was like, oh, that's your dad. And then he like came in and did our special education unit. <laughs> Oh my God. So cool. Okay. Only not specifically in the autism world, but yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Well, yeah, uh, I have a lot to say about this, so I'll try and keep it short in the interest of time. Um, But uh, restorative justice and students with different needs. um, So with autism, like one of the challenges is seeing other people's perspectives. And I think what restorative justice does is gives these students the tools to see others' perspectives and even students without autism. Um, And then um, what RJ does is it's voluntary. So all these, all the people involved are, have like a buy-in in it and it's inclusive. So, um, everybody has some say in it and I was wondering because I saw in your notes you said um, something about like keeping kids in the classroom as much as you can so like I guess what I was curious is where you see this in terms of like having separate classrooms for uh, folks with disabilities which it sounds like is uh, where you work versus trying Mm -hmm. to incorporate you know kids with autism or other learning disabilities in like standard classrooms. Yeah, so I teach students with moderate to severe autism, so I'm pretty self-contained. But if I think a student can um, be included into other classes that are different than my own, I I really push for that. Um, But I get pushback from teachers because they're like, I don't know how to handle your students. Mm-hmm. I'm like, bitch, they're <laughs> all of our students. Yes. <laughs> it's not just mine because they have a disability. Um, but I think with restorative justice, it empowers teachers, parents, and students to have understanding and allow the discourse to change from these students being problems to students that can be supported. Um, and, and RJ provides equal opportunity to education for all students, whether that's students with autism or those who are more neurotypical. Ugh, I hate that, but. <laughs> yes, sure. It but is it, the language we have. I know, I know. <laughs> but the biggest thing is empathy. Mm. RJ teaches empathy and that generalizes across ability or socioeconomic status and gives people the opportunity to do better. And we can always do better. Um, Yeah. um, I hope that answers the question. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. I thought it would be fun. So we tried it like, Everything sometimes when we do episodes can be like, everything fucking sucks and it's hard and we don't know what to do about it. But I thought it could be fun for um, y'all to think about um, like if you could create the school system or educational system of your dreams, what would it look like? (laughs) Because for me, it's like, what are we working towards? You know, so I, I know we've touched on a lot of the elements that could be involved in that, but I thought that might be a fun way for us to end. I love that question. Thank you for asking it, because we don't always have the opportunity to talk positively about (laughs) visions Mm -hmm. for the future. Yeah, It's so easy to just, like, sit around and gripe, because there's so much to gripe about, and it can wear you down. Um, So bad. Absolutely. Yeah. Positive, positive, positive. Yeah. (laughs) For me, the school school or education system of my dreams is a a super collaborative environment that maximizes uh, participation by the students in terms of determining that structure. I can't, I can say what I would want a school to be as a teacher, but the fact is that's still maintaining those same power dynamics that we're trying to dismantle through RJ. And the fact is that has to come from students. And even talking to students that are really educated in RJ, they're always saying, you know, teachers are always focused on the discipline aspect. Like that's all they talk about. But like, we want to build community. Um, and in RJ, we talk about tier one and tier two. Tier one is uh, 
the community building aspect, teaching kids positive and healthy coping mechanisms and learning how to share and be vulnerable. And then tier two is reacting to harm. And Mm. that makes me think like it has to start with them. They have to be the ones to, to say like, this is what we need to feel supported. This is what we need to learn. This is what we need to, uh, you know, grow as a person outside of the content. Um, and so a school that really feels egalitarian and that in which I am an authority figure because I am knowledgeable in my content area and that's why I'm up at the front of the classroom and that's why I'm respected by my students mm. as opposed to me being knowledge, me being respectable because of my title, because of my last name, because of my ability to inflict punishment. Um, and just learning more from the kids and developing more two-way relationships and no standardized testing yes (laughs) all the snaps for it fuck it yeah i guess figuring out a different way to measure growth yes and and to talk about growth and measure success generally like what it means to produce a successful child Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I, I don't have much to add <laughs> to what Mel said other than like students need to be socially emotionally supported and we're totally not giving students that space to do that. And if they're not there emotionally they're not going to be there to receive their education at all. And I've been really focusing on social, emotional behavior stuff this past year as part of um, just something that I have to do for my credential. But um, I've really seen the value in not being so hard-headed about getting to every single piece of content that the standardized tests want you to get to. You have to meet students where they're at. And if they don't have the skills to receive the message, they're just going to be more upset because you're trying to be dominating and not understanding where they're coming from or building those connections with them. So yeah, just having everything be socially, emotionally based would be pretty dope. Yes. Holy shit, you guys, this was so amazing. (laughs) For the kids. For the kids for president. Yeah, also like, yes, what I feel like as an educator, so my organization is completely youth led um, in the way that Mel is describing. Like when I was brought on, my executive director like sat me down and was like, they they lead the curriculum really like with what they want to learn and all that stuff, which is amazing. Um, But like. As an educator, it's like, we are in charge of the future. (laughs) We're in charge of the future. I mean, we're not in charge. The youth are in charge. But, like, we are the maybe, like, facilitators or, uh, like, we're, like, the guides to people for the future. And and that's, Mm -hmm. like, a huge freaking responsibility. And, like, like the future is what we got. That's all we got. And it might not even exist. So, like, let's put the power (laughs) in the hands of the youth. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Y'all are amazing. I'm so pleased with how this went. Um, Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules to talk to us. Is there anything else that you'd like to share before we sign off? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Probably always. Yes. Um, We can always do a round two. That's always available to us. (laughs) I just want to say that this isn't a journey that just because you didn't get a restorative justice education as a child doesn't mean that that's not a journey that you can start on as an, as a grown up, uh, mm-hmm. and that all of these skills are, are skills that anyone can pick up at any time and start doing today to relate better to other people, to learn better, collaborate better, cope with your emotions better. Like this is such a lifelong journey for me, yes. uh, for everyone. And so if this is something that is important to you, you can totally get started now. Yeah. So where should we go to find that resource? <laughs> Good question. Um, Google. Yeah. 
Google, and I, I'm definitely available if anyone wants to to come find me. However, that may be, um, I love to come and chat. I have a resolution that I authored at the DSA convention to create a restorative justice curriculum that anyone can access, so that people can get mm-hmm. uh, can self empower to to learn about these and and make become better organizing organizers through restorative justice. But we'll see where that goes. Yeah. Oh my God, oh, love. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much. This was amazing. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, well, that was a really good conversation. The stuff they were saying at the end really reminded me of my experience in art school, which was like the first and only time I've liked school because mostly the grades were just kind of like effort and creativity. And then they would like give us a bunch of feedback. So yes. it was like really good. And also if you were like late and missed class all the time, there was like really no sort of discipline. So um yeah really made me think of that um and yeah super interesting I definitely hear people talk about restorative justice a lot in terms of like harassment and stuff like that and I now know a lot more about it yeah I think I it's often thought about even in terms of just like what we could see ourselves in a a post-prison abolition state. But I think it's so tied up in the education system because of how punitive our education system is. And so I loved this conversation. I felt like our guests really had a handle on what it all meant. So that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I do wish we got to your question about school to prison pipeline, but that will have to be another episode. We'll have to do it again. Mel and Scarlett, we'll have to do it again and talk about that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that could definitely be an entire episode, so. Yeah, exactly. Coming soon. To a podcast near you. The (laughs) podcast is us. (laughs) And near you is on the internet. Which is near you. Yeah. Yeah. So, as always, you can uh, subscribe, like, rate. You can't like it on iTunes. You can rate it, which... (laughs) means you like it because you would only give us five stars and you can review us and tell us how amazing we are um what else you can follow us on twitter and instagram at season of the bee you can search for us on facebook at season of the bitch you can go to our website season of the which I recently realized that the picture of me like dressed up as an axe, no, a, yeah, like a murderer is yes. what on our website. And I love it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, oh, yeah, you can give us your money on Patreon, you nerds. Yes, we have so many fun things happening. We just released a um, an episode of the of a roasted series which is a series that zoe and i do where we roast people's astrological charts and we just did a bunch of the presidential 2020 candidates so yeah you gotta hop to it (laughs) i will not name who but someone was telling me last night about a different leftist podcast um talking about doing like an episode where they talk about the charts of all the candidates and i was like "Mm, it's fucking been done girl what up (laughs) it was a pot it was whatever i'm not whatever i'm not gonna talk trash but i was just like yeah no we already did that so anyway you can pay us and go listen to it what's up what's up (laughs) and we're thinking of doing them after every uh freaking debate because i feel like so much of their charts come out in those moments so yes Okay, this outro is getting long, but I also need to say, now that you mentioned debates, I'm really fucking upset about Microville. Oh, I know. Like, I knew they were going to fucking do this, but I'm just mad that they're fucking doing it. Yes. <sighs> Let the, the man speak. Yes. No respect. So anyway. <laughs> I'm now reading. The reason why I'm, like, kind of pausing is I'm reading all the reviews we have on iTunes, and... They're very good. I appreciate all of you who have done this. It's very, very sweet and very nice. I like Actually, it. Actually, I never got to read them, and I should, because it would make me feel good. It's it's so sweet. I'm, like, tearing up. Oh, wait, <laughs> read one. Um, I remember we read um, Lucia's when she came on the podcast on the Labor in the Our World episode. Remember? Yes. Yes. We found her review. That was very cute. Um, 
Okay, so there's one that says, what is there to say? The hosts of this podcast are brilliant, hilarious, and informative. I can feel continually uplifted and informed and can recommend this podcast enough. Wow. Thank you so much. Uh, It says, one of them says, my friend recommended this podcast to me and I'm so thankful for it. The hosts are really good at clarifying and explaining concepts in a non-patronizing way at white leftist men. And going over topics that I actually care about. I just started listening and I already feel like I've learned so much and I've recommended this to literally all of my friends and everyone else should too. Absolutely phenomenal and straight up has brought me to tears a few times because I feel so affirmed by their words and thoughts and ideas. So thankful Ah. for y'all. Oh my god. Wow. We're thankful for you. Uh, Obsessed. Obsessed with everyone. Thank you so much. Our fans are the fucking best. This is the longest outro. Yeah, who cares? Okay. Love you, Zoe. Love you. Bye. Bye. Season of the Bitch.